0: Welcome back to Down the Rabbi Hole. Today, we're going to talk about a lesser-known date on the Jewish calendar, and that is the 8th of Teves. Before that, a word about, I'm recording this, it's Vav Teves, Friday, Arab Shabbos. Yesterday was Hey Teves, which, in addition to being my grandmother's yard site, so this is Nishmasa Khanobasa Arye. In addition to being my grandmother's yard site, the, the fifth of Teves is a Chabad holiday called Yom Dido which marks the date in, I believe, 1987, in which a New York state court decided in favor of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, against his nephew, Barry Gurari. Basically, the suit was, Barry Gurari went into Chabad headquarters in 770, took some took some sfarim with the claim. These sfarim belonged to my grandfather, who was the previous Rebbe, the sixth Rebbe. Meaning, Barry Gurari's father and Lubavitcher Rebbe, last Lubavitcher Rebbe, were married to sisters, daughters of the previous Rebbe. So, Barry Gurari said, "I deserve to inherit because I am one of the uh, you know I'm a, I'm a descendant. I'm a I'm a grandchild." And so, basically, the entire debate, you know, the deliberation in the court was whether the property of the world headquarters of Chabad, whether the Rebbe's, the previous Rebbe's library, did that belong to the previous Rebbe as an individual or did it belong to the Hasidus as a whole? And the court decided it is communal property. It is It belongs to the Hasidus as a whole. And of course, we have all kinds of legal constructs that are not individuals, uh, corporations and partnerships and Hekadashim, right? There are in various, you know, in various parts of the world, there are um, entities that are considered individuals that, that that are considered almost like people, and that they can that that they have legal rights. So the court decided that the Hasidus, as a collective, owns these farm, and that no individual can then claim private ownership. Now. We non chabadniks look at this and we're like, it's so weird. Like they're making a holiday out of like fine Mela, Yatkislave, the day that, you know, the Rebbe was freed from prison. Okay, we get it. Right? That's a that's a major that's a major milestone and it was a major turning point in his career. But the idea that like they won a court case, why turn that into a holiday? It's one of the better known holidays, and it's not a site and it's not like a a birthday or anything like that. But on reflection, um, I think it's actually, it actually is really important, especially if you look at how most and Hasidus are, are seen today. Um, the, a lot of the bitterest fights over succession in the Hasidic world are related to essentially money. The person in charge, Controls, you know, controls the purse strings. The Rebbe is the one that has at his disposal uh, all, of, you know, basically billions of dollars worth of real estate and all kinds of assets and all kinds of valuable, um, you know, all kinds of, of things that are worth a lot of money. right? And the question of who does that belong to? Does it belong to the Rebbe as an individual? And And it's easy to, like, blur the line between the individual and the collective. Right is the Rebbe, right? Does this belong to the Rebbe or does this belong to the Hasidus? It's not always that. It's not always easy to differentiate where the Rebbe ends and where the Hasidus begins. That's I think the nature of any charismatic movement. So when the court decided that um, this is the property of Hasidus, it's essentially saying that the Hasidus has become something which is bigger than any one person. A Hasidic right? A chasidic movement um, is not is not owned is not owned by the Rebbe. And I think that it's an important point and it's a point that we often miss because it's it's what allows a Hasidic to stay on mission. It's what allows a Hasidic to not get bogged down by who owns what or you know you, you're, the, that the leaders are not in it for Control of these of these assets, but that it's about the mission. And to their credit, Chabad has done an incredible job of making that library publicly available. A lot of a, uh, most of the collection in on Hebrew books comes from the Chabad library. So that five minutes of thought a uh, thought of, a five minute thought on on Hey Kislav on Yom on Yom Didan And now we'll move on to Chesteves, which also has to do with books, but in a very, very, very different way. And it has to do with a library, but a very, very, very different library. The story that during the reign of Ptolemy II, a group of Jewish sages, is a story that appears in a lot of different forms, already, already starting like well before the, well before the, the end of the second Beis HaMikdash. Um, one of the earliest sources that discusses it is the, first of all, the Mishnah is already aware that the Torah is translated into Greek. Uh, other Jewish writers from the, from the first century, like Philo and Josephus, Philo, there's a question whether or not he understood the Torah in Hebrew or had the Torah in Hebrew. He, the Torah that he, that he studied, it seems, was the Greek Torah. And he knew of this story of the translation by, uh, according to most versions, it's 70 or 72 scholars, right? And that's where you get the, the term Targum Shivim or Septuagint. That's where that comes from. And you know there are different stories about how they put them all in different rooms, and they didn't collaborate on it, and a miracle happened, and they all came out with the same translation. To which Rav Huttner famously said, "Oh, they put them all in the same room, and they came up with the great with the same translation." That's not a chiddush. The chiddush would have been had they put had he put them all in the same room, and they came up with the with the same t- translation. That is uh, typical. You know, Rav, Rav was very sharp about things like this. So this day of Chesteves, so the, the earlier sources talk about it as a sort of as a happy day. Happy day. The Torah is now in Greek. In Chazal, so you see that there's a sort of progression. Right? The Gemara in Megillah talks about how there was anxiety about this. And you know that the, that there was fear that meaning was going to be lost, and then in Meseches Sofrim it gets even more, it gets even darker. It says something about how uh, it was like the day that the Egel Hazav was made, or that three days of darkness descended on the world, and then you get in what's in a work called Megillas Tynes Basra, right, which is a very, it's it's sort of a mysterious work. It first appears in its full, in its full version in the Sefer Bahag, the Balalahos Kedolos, who lived at the time of the Geonim, and he includes a list of, this list of fast days, and it's a whole bunch of fast something like 50 fast days, it's actually quoted in the Shulchan Aruch, but... Most of these fast days, they come and go and you don't even know about A few of them are famous, right? Zion Adar is mentioned on that, in that Megillus Tynus. Now, this is different from, this should not be confused with the original Megillus Tynus. That Megillus Tynus was a list of minor holidays, not a list of fast days. And it's from the time of Bias Shani, And it's probably, it's possibly the oldest rabbinic work um, that was ever compiled. And it's essentially a list of fast days you know on this day we don't do a hespit and we don't do uh and we don't do a tinus on this day we don't do a hespit and we don't do a tinus right and it has things in there like uh like Chanukah, but it also has things in there like um you know yom Nikanor which is on the thirteenth day of uh of of uh of Adar, which is a day that i you know, uh, i don't even remember they have like days that you know kings like uh like Herod or or Yana died. They there are days where um, you know these are these are the minor holidays where there's Yom Har where Alexander the Great decided not to. It's discussed in the Gemara and Thinus, but Alexander the Great decided not to not to destroy the Mikdash but instead to go after the Shomeronim. There are a few different uh, there. You know each month has like you know has, has several days. Um, the work on it is. The like the book on Megillah Steins is the edition that was published by Professor Vered Noam of uh, Tel Aviv University a number of years ago. It's a phenomenal work. She has some incredible chidushim on it in terms of um, you know she she essentially teases out. So there's two parts of Megillah There's the Megillah itself, which is just one line. And then there's what was called the Scolion, which is a, whole, a fuller development and embellishment of what exactly happened on that day. And there are three different versions. There's a version that appears in the, in the Bavli, and then there were two other versions that over time got, got uh, squished into one version. And that's what she calls the hybrid version. And she basically, through careful manuscript study, manages to tease apart these two editions, these two versions of the scholion, and it shows that there's two versions of the scholion, of the later development of the of the Megillas um from the time of the from the time of the Tanayim and early Amorayim, meaning that still in you know part of classical rabbinic literature. Then there's another Megillashtinus, which is what we're talking about now. This was produced at some point early in the time of the Geonim. They've actually found they found their archaeological digs that have these calendars on like a on like a shoal wall. Uh, an archaeologist by the name of Chagai Misgav has published on this, an Israeli archaeologist. And among those, uh, you know, you have things like Zayin Adar, You have all kinds of yar- these are actual fast days, days that are purportedly sad. Um, you have the yard sites. Of very, you know, of of, of various, um, you have the yard sites of various major figures from Jewish history. A lot of them from Tanakh, like Yoshua and Aaron a and Miriam. Their yard sites are all on that Megillah and Moshe Rabbeinu. And then you also have you also have uh, the yard sites of people like Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion, right, who was killed, who was martyred. And then you have three days in a row, right, which is gets which gets us to what we're talking about. There are three days in a row that are listed as fast days, the 8th, the 9th, and the 10th of um, of Teves. Now, lest you think that this is like some obscure thing that nobody ever knew about because it was out, some, you know, from the Ge'onim and the Bahag, it's actually a simon in Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch just paskins it straight up, right, that these are the things that... Uh, you know these are the these are the fast days that you know that some people observe um, and it should be known that you know there the, the dates here they, there's tradition about these dates that predate let's say Lagba Omer by centuries by many centuries Lagba Omer doesn't come become a thing until after Kabbalah sahari and Svat. It's uh, you know the association with Rabishum Bar Yochai is relatively late but here you have, you know, things like Rabbi, Shimon ben Tra- Rabbi Hanina ben Tradion. You know, his yard site is actually well att- is, is attested um, hundreds and hundreds of years before anybody says anything about uh, Rashbi and, uh, and, and Logba Omer. Okay. Um, so, Ches What happened on Ches Tevez? was the day that the Situagint was translated. And that's a fast day. That's a sad day. Bad day. Not a good day for the Jews. The ninth is, um, in the original text, it says, we don't know why. There's later texts that say that it was the archite of Ezra Hasopher, And then there's this whole theory that that connects it to uh, Peter, St. Peter, who, according to Chazal, according to uh, Toldos Yeshu and other sources, was actually an emissary of the Bezdin sent to basically divorce Judaism from early Christianity. It's a fascinating theory. The person that's most associated with the, the study of this theory is uh, Professor Schneer Lyman, who has an, an article on it from quite some time ago. And it's, uh, it, it's, it, it's a fascinating, fascinating sugya in general. And then the tenth of Teves is obviously, um, asar Teves, the day of, you know, the Tzom HaSiri, which is already mentioned in the Navi, um, the day that Yerushalayim was besieged. So, for the most part, I don't, I don't know of anyone who observes, who fasts on the eighth day of Teves. That'll be this Sunday, the day that this episode drops you're in the States and you're listening to this, uh, right when it comes out, it's ches teves. If you listen to it when it comes out in Israel, it's already tes teves. Uh nobody, nobody does this. Nobody nobody observes this fast. There's no slichos. There's mention of it in one of the slichos uh, for asar abetebez. And in fact, there was a sort of, in the time of the Renaissance, I wrote a piece in the Lairhouse a few years ago. I can put it in the... Uh, I can put the link in the in the notes. The I, I wrote an article about how one of the first accounts of well of, of the translation of the Torah into Greek is in a a work called the Letter of Aristius, which is a uh, it, it's apocryphal. It was something that some groups included it in the in their version of the Tanakh, but it was not canonized by the Jewish mainstream. So, in this letter, it talks about you know it, it describes the entire uh, you know the, it, it de- describes the process and the jubilation uh, related to the process of translating the Torah into Greek. And this was a work that was unknown to Jews for many, many years because it was composed in Greek, and Jews didn't read Greek, and it wasn't part of their canon. It was preserved by the church, and it was discovered, as it were, by Ravazaria de Rossi who himself was a fascinating character, in the late 1500s, and he translated it into Hebrew, right? So you have, it's like an interesting, you, you know, it, 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 it's a little bit complicated. First of all, he and many others in Renaissance Italy, he made a living tutoring Christians in Hebrew, right? So you could see that these negative tradi- traditions, the negative traditions about Christians learning the Torah, are about making the Torah available to everybody, that's got to be a source of anxiety for a guy like Isaiah de Rossi who's making his living translating. The truth of the matter is, I also make a living translating, and I have other anxieties about that, meaning I have to like it's my responsibility to ensure that what the original text says is not in any way falsified in the in the um in the translated text. I actually thought about it a lot exactly 2 years ago when Tess when Ches fell out on the day that they actually finished the Daf Yomi cycle. So here I'm thinking that Daf Yomi, the Daf Yomi cycle was so much, um, so much of Daf Yomi is made possible by translation. So many people are using the modern Hebrew or English translations, right? And on the other hand, you know, Chazal expressed this anxiety about translation, that translation, you know, you're making it accessible, you're giving access to people who sh- shouldn't necessarily have access um, and and you can't really fully translate it. There's another little footnote. The, the article that really goes through Chazal's attitudes towards these translations is an article by Moshe Simon Shoshan. Um, I don't remember the title offhand. Uh, I can try to leave a link to that in the in the episode notes as well. So that's the that's Ches Teves. And that's, Ches Tevez is you, 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 already in the Renaissance with a guy who was like Ravazaria de Rossi. He comes and says, you know, translation's not so bad. I make a living. And and what he does, it's almost like, it's like what we call in Israel, hafuch al hafuch, right? It, he turns the whole thing around. He takes a work that was originally in Greek, translates it into Hebrew, so that people that read Hebrew will have a greater appreciation of the fact that chachamim. Thousands of years ago, took something that was written in Hebrew and translated it into Greek. Right? So it's you're translating from Greek to Hebrew in order to give a better appreciation of the translation from Hebrew into Greek. And it could be that he saw them both as, as two sides of the same coin, right? The Renaissance, they were returning to the classics. That's what the rebirth was. So they're returning to the original Latin, and they're returning to the original Greek, and they're returning to the original Hebrew. And there are all kinds of what we call Christian Hebrewists that, uh, you know, that, are, that are studying Hebrew with Jews, sometimes with apostate Jews, and sometimes with non-apostate Jews, like actual Talmidei Chachamim, throughout Europe. Um, you know, especially in the low countries, right, Netherlands, Belgium, Germany, and Italy throughout this, you know, in in this time period. Okay. Now we come to the exception, and he's a fascinating exception. He's an amazing exception. And it's none other than the Chassam Sofer. If you open up Drashos Chassam Sofer, right, he gave Drashos throughout the year for the course of more than 40 years, right? He was... He became, he lived to about the age of 78. He became a rov when he was in his early 30s, um, first in a town in Moravia, and then he was in Mattersdorf, and then he was in, for the last uh, 33 years of his life, he was in Pressburg, which is today Bratislava, in Slovakia, but then was 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 part of Hungary. And he, you know, he gave drushes whenever, right? He was the rov of a city, he gave drushos. If you look at the drashas by volume, the drashas that he gives on the Yom and Tovim, the drashas that he gives on Pesach and Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, and okay, he gave a year every year on on or around Ches Teves. If you add up the pages on Ches Teves in the drashos of the Chasam Sofer, meaning, and I'm saying the two dr- the two volumes of the classical drashos Chasam Sofer plus what's called uh, Toras Moshe, which is another book of Drushos of the Chasam Sofer, he spoke more about Ches Tevez than he spoke about Sukkis. Okay, it's insane. If you think about like Ches Tevez, yeah, a couple of you know, a couple of geeks know what Ches Tevez is. Who knows what Ches Tevez is? Who knows that it's a thing? Yeah, once heard. Yeah, that's the day of the Septuagint. Fine, Shkoyach. Right? What do you have to say about it? Not much. Chazal thought translation was a bad thing. Moving on. Sukkis, Sukkis. Oh my gosh, you got entire books on Sukkis. And then you look in the Chasam Sofer, and he has his drushos on Ches Teves are more extensive than his drushos on than his drushos on Sukkis. It's it's astonishing. Okay. Now I can't claim to have gone through all of these drushos, but I've gone through a bunch of them partially because I'm a translator and I also like the Chassam Sofer. So, um, you know, so that's what it is. So I like this stuff. And I found that he has three drushos: two that appear in the Drushos Chassam Sofer and one that appears in Torres Moshe, where he gives three different versions of the same Mashal, through which he explains what the problem is with what what's the problem with translation? So the one that I'm gonna that I'm gonna read along with read with you today. He was he gave it in uh, the year Tav Kuf Ayin Gimel, which is uh, the winter of 1812. And you're talking about the era of Napoleon now. He also on this occasion he you know on on, on Teves he would sometimes give hespedim. Because it's a sad day, because it's a day of a yard side, and because you know, like even today, you know, like the Asarabatez is the Yom Kaddish Klali, because it's just, you know, it's like Ma'asseflahola Mahnos. Any any tragedy that isn't observed on any other date, you can stick it on you stick it on to you stick it on to because it's already three days anyway. Or technically three days, it's already for three things anyway. Um so he used to give Hespedim. So in this Drasha on Chest. And the drasha and Ches from 1812. He was all. He it was also a Hespid for Rav David Zinzheim. Who was Rav David Zinzheim? He was a rav in Alsace Lorraine, in the, the areas of France that bordered Germany, or sometimes the areas of Germany that bordered France. At this time, it was the areas of France that bordered Germany. This is right after Napoleon. France was riding high. France was a world power. Um, France won a lot of wars. I know, it's astonishing. Not as astonishing as the amount that Hassam Sofa wrote on Chesteves, but still, astonishing. French won wars. Rav in time he wrote Svarim. He was like a classic Lamed and Posek but he also was one of the main forces behind Napoleon's Sanhedrin. Napoleon, famously, you know, he didn't suffer from any lack of grandiosity. He said, oh, there hasn't been a Jewish Sanhedrin for 1,500 years, 1,600 years, whatever. No problem. I'm going to convene one. I'm going to get together all of the rabbis, the great, you know, the the, the notable rabbis in France, and we're going to call it a Sanhedrin. And I'm going to ask a series of questions, and you know, and, and these questions are going to determine whether or not the Jews uh, can get civil rights. Now, the way that the the answers are formulated, and it seems that this was the work of Rav David Zinsheim. The their, the answers are formulated so politically it's like you can see that they're walking a tightrope on the other hand they don't want to they don't want to be Messiah anything they don't want to they don't want to tell any untruths and they don't tell any untruths but at the same time you read them and they're they're subtly very subtly um like answering the questions and like, like he asked uh trying to think of an example offhand. He asked questions about like intermarriage, you know, is is, like, is it forbidden for a Jew to marry a Christian? And, you know, the answer was, the Jews have no more objection to marrying Christians than the Christians have to marrying Jews or something like that. Um, and they said, you know, do you believe that a Christian, a, a Jewish marriage to a Christian is invalid? And they basically said that if the law of the state recognizes the marriage, then... And we recognize the law of the state in terms of, um, you know, it was like a very formulated it very subtly. Um, like he didn't want to say like, yeah, we don't give it. He didn't say no, we don't give it any halachic recognition, but something like we we recognize that it's valid according to the laws of the state or something like that. Um, it's really, it's 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 a masterpiece in diplomatic writing. So. After, discu- after discussing Rav Tzintzheim, or during his discussion of Rav Tzintzheim, the Chasim Sofer uses that to explain why translation is so problematic. What's wrong with translation? And he writes, he says, it's like he gives this mushel, and he gives, like I said, there were two, uh, he gives the same mushel, three different variations on the same mushel in different places. He had these royal he had this royal garb that was amazing. The the base article of clothing was this scarlet was this scarlet robe. Now nobody could see the scarlet underneath. Nobody could see the scarlet garment because there were so many precious stones and gems and signs and insignias and symbols that were put on it. It's not just that they were pretty stones, but each one had significance. Each one signified something to do with his, you know, like you're talking about like epaulets, right? Something that, you know, signifies this victory in this war and something that signifies this and something like right? something about you know wars that he won or things that were his own honor or his or the honors of his ancestors when he wore that garment amongst his ministers and his servants bene malka the the people who were familiar with the king's inter, inner sanctum it it made them honor him even more. It made him vent. It made them venerate him even more. They understood what each of those little gemstones, what each of those little insignias alludes to. They, you know, they they, they understood. And as the people around him gave him more respect, it gave him more chizak, it gave him, he became more, he became greater. V'hayal right? le'ish so, Until he was able to rule the entire world with his might. then one day. Right? The people of the country, the countrymen, they had a taiva. What did they lust after? What did they want? more? We want to see the king. So the king planned a trip and he went throughout his kingdom. He went throughout his all his lands, throughout all the country. As he went through, he was wearing his royal garb, Hanal, the, the one we already mentioned, right, with all these stones on it. He heard everybody saying Mayava Avnaim Lavush Yokar hazeh." This is such an amazing this is such an amazing This is such amazing clothing. Hashaniya we've never seen such a vivid color scarlet. Khal the Too bad that it's covered in stones. Too bad we can't really see that scarlet. Right? We could do without. We don't want those adornments. We want to just see the king in his in the robes as they are unadorned. These stones, all they're doing is covering up the beauty of the underlying garment. And that's what everybody wants to see. So what happened? He heard everybody saying this. This part the king was tempted by what they were saying. And he said, "Take off the gemstones, take off the pearls, take off the insignias, from this gar- garment, so that everybody can see, so that the so that the the garment itself is exposed, and this scarlet texture." Right, And it was imadane, meaning it had like a very uh, uh, an intricate texture. And then everybody started praising the king. Wow, this is great. And everybody was praising him. And how amazing the king is. Now, it's interesting here, and in other places, he says it's mafurish. You know what, before we get, let's finish the mushal before we go on. But one of his ministers was there. One of the inner circle was there. He was very... He looked very sad. What's wrong? You must be jealous. You must be, you know... It must be something wrong with you. That you, you know, you get sad when you see... How honored I am. and how, how much glory I have. And this minister said to the king, Berosi Haolam Bach. I get sad when I see that everybody's ruling over you. You're not ruling over them, they're all ruling over you. And you're tempted. You were seduced by their words. odos And the war that they give you. That they honor you because of this scarlet garment. You, the more scorn you have, the more you disgust you have for these avnei for these beautiful stones. Right, which are the praise of your father's houses. Meaning, everybody sees you, everybody loves it, and that's great. But it means you're forgetting. All the meaning behind those other stones—it's yakar base of This is shevach base of This is your past. Be sofashi kansupnei hem charulim avak ve'efar avak ve'afar velo yatsiru velo yatsiru. At a certain point, you're going to wear these garments. They're not going to be protected. They're going to grow duller. They're going to go, you know, after you put it in the washing machine a few times, the scarlet isn't so, uh, isn't so special anymore. And everybody's going to forget that. And they're not going to know anything about the covet of your family. And also, listen, you're inviting competition. They're going to, everybody's going to see this. Everybody's going to be like, ooh, I love scarlet. I want to wear scarlet. And then, you know, people are going to start textile factories where they make scarlet. And until the end, even the villagers, even the peasants, they're going to dress like you. You're not going to be able to tell the difference between the rich and the poor, the honored and the insignificant. Please, king. Anashima Elu Let's make a compromise. Put the stones back on the garment. Right, And then take them off as you want. A little bit here, a little bit there. And then you can put them back. When you go through your kingdom, you show part of it and you cover... Two parts. Min HaBeged. Pambazat side, pambazat. Sometimes you'll show this side. Sometimes you'll show that side. Be'ofen she'gam heima yavinu v'yei hanu b'masheim So they'll still enjoy it. They'll see the the rich scarlet texture. Avalo yaser mi necha But you'll never forget who you are, who and who your father's house is. Ve'oz atatim shol bahem. And then you will rule over them. Ve'lo bach. And they won't rule over you. And the king did so, and he was very successful. That's the mashal. Now, obviously, in the, the Nimshal, right, the king is a Kadosh Baruch Hu, the garment is the Torah, the close Tsar, right, the sarim that are the, the, the close officials, the inner circle, is the Jewish people and the countrymen everybody else those are those are the nations of the world right so on one hand here you have a very it's an it's a somewhat ecumenical vision because he's saying that you know a Kaddish baruch whose Torah is for the rest of the world as well except that the unadorned and we'll put it even put a sharper point on it the unadorned Torah the unadorned garment is the Torah without any commentary. The Torah without medrash. It's pshat. Pshat, it could be very beautiful, but you're missing all of the illusions. you're missing all of the things that make the Torah special. Right? He's, his commentary here is and this is something that Mo'oz Kahana has written about, the idea that Chasam um, Sofer's problem with an almost empirical attitude towards interpreting the Torah, where, you know, based on you know the works of Spinoza, that you can be scientific about parashanut and you can get to the one true meaning of the of the work. Um, and obviously, Chassam Sofer is saying that no, there's all kinds of things that are that are there that are part of the meaning, but that aren't necessarily accessible through pshat. And it's only we, who we know the history and we know the stories and we're close with the king. We know what all of these little things symbolize, right? And somebody like David Zinzheim, Rav David sinheim he had that extraordinary ability to show what he needed to show from the Torah and cover what he needed to cover from the Torah. This Megaleh right. Tefach And he's... He's also, with this, and in one other place he says it explicitly, he's explaining the paradox of, on one hand, everybody thought that the translation of the Torah was great. The whole world thought it was great that the Torah was translated. On the other hand, we thought that it was a tragedy. He just because we're the inner circle. When everybody sees that the Torah is there, we look at it and we see the Torah is naked, right? You just translated the pshat, which means that you're never going to have access to this incredible richness of the Torah, which is not based on the pshat. Which is based on all these Ramazim, and which is based on all these Midrashim and it is based on all these illusions that only come across when you study the Torah within a tradition and in its and in its original and in its original language. And in other places, he actually quotes he quotes Yosipon. It wasn't at, I don't know if it's in Yosipon. I don't think it's in Yosipon. Um Maybe it is the story of the translation of the Torah into Greek. Um, so that is and you you see not just you know how he's thinking about it but you see it in a very contemporary way how the sofer is thinking about uh the translation of the Torah he's living in a he's living in a world where we want to you know where first of all everything was things were being um it was a reductionist puritanical world, right? That there was the enlightenment world wanted to purify, wanted to get out the true meaning of what the Torah was. And he's denying that there's a possibility of doing that. Or he says there is a possibility, but if you do that, it's it may be nice for you, but it's a tragedy for the rest of the world. Or for, it's a, it's, it might be nice for the rest of the world, but it's a tragedy for us. Um, and he's also thinking about, he's, he's working through in this mushal his, the relationship between, you I mean, what is the relationship between the Jewish people and the Torah and God, and what is the relationship between the the non, you know, the the non-Jewish nations of the world and the Torah, and God, and as he's thinking through this, like this is very much a part of it. It's not just it's, this is halacha right? He is he's living in a world where these sorts of things are are, are being changed and are, are are changing in front of his eyes and quite rapidly. We're not going to go through a whole discussion of the hashkafa of the of the chasam. So far, um, but uh, he saw a world that was being disenCHANTed, right? And this removal of all of these precious stones is a world of disenchantment, right? There's no mystery anymore. There's no there's no secrets anymore. Everything's out there, right? There's no there's no there's nothing mystic or mysterious or romantic about the about the Torah anymore. It's all there. It's all it's it, the Torah is naked for the whole world to see. And he's and he's writing how this is tragic and how the way to deal with it is the way that Rav David Tzimsheim dealt with it by being megala tefach Yes, the Torah has what to say for every occasion. But we need to learn how to use the Torah to speak in the language that the world wants to hear. But also, at the same time, to obscure the parts of the Torah, you know, where we think that it could lead to misunderstanding or, or misunder, misunderstanding of the Torah or misunderstanding of us, right? That we keep the internal, the real meaning, the full meaning the full meaning, not the real meaning, because pshat is also real meaning, the full meaning of the Torah to ourselves, and we use that naked Torah, the pshat of the naked Torah um, in a diplomatic way. Um, And so I think that the Chassam Sofer was actually drawn to Like you know, the way that a, a moth is drawn to fire. It embodied so much of what he saw as you know the sorts of things happening in the world and the and the culture clashes that he was living through and the changes that were happening in society around him, especially in Germany. And he sort of he processed this, he processed these changes through the lens of Ches teves, through the lens of the translation of the Torah into the lingua franca of the world. Right In his day, it was German. Uh, in the days of Chazal, it was Greek. So this is what he's thinking about, the translation of the Torah into Greek. How does it happen? What's the upside? What's the downside? And I think that it offers us some insight into his own thinking, and it also offers insight into the nature of this day and how this day is a meaningful day, and I I observe it in my own way, you know, as a day to reflect on my work as a translator, but, uh, you know, the so Sofer, again, he spoke more on this than he did on Sukkot. So, there's really, um, it really, the the day of Ches for him really embodied something very, very central to... To the way that we, the Jewish people, uh, view our our role in this world, as the bearers of God will of God's will, who are in danger of being eclipsed as the bearers of God's will, of God's word, once it becomes accessible to the rest of the world. Have an easy and meaningful fast on Asar Bateves. Can. Consider this. Keep this in mind when you, uh, you know, when you observe that fast, and uh, we'll be back next week.